Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. I'm glad to see everybody has survived the rain so far. And, uh, it's crazy, and maybe we'll get some more today. Who knows? Uh, well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, if you would. Matthew chapter 13, where we'll be this morning. The Barna Group uh, is known for their statistical surveys uh, about Christianity recently released a survey uh, indicating a, a pretty sharp decline of Christianity in America, which may not come as a surprise. Uh, they found that in 2000, 45% of Americans identified as professing Christians. Uh, but by 2020, that percentage had decreased to 25%. Um, on the other hand, over the last 20 years, those identifying as non-practicing Christians, um, whatever that means, rose from 35% to 45%, and those who identified as non-Christians rose from 20% to 32%. A weekly church attendance in the U.S. hovers around 20% of Christians. And this phenomenon is not isolated to America either. You look at England, France, Germany, uh, the average weekly church attendance ranges anywhere from between 2 to 15%. Now simultaneously, we of course see increasing hostility towards Christian beliefs and ethics throughout the Western world, uh, which used to be uh, a place that trumpeted uh, its reliance on Judeo-Christian values. And these statistics are not encouraging. Right? We don't look at these things and go, wow, that's great. I'm really glad things are trending in that direction. And it may even seem that the church, that the, the kingdom of God perhaps, is in a state of decline and failure. We look at things around us. But this would be a grave misconception. And in fact, this morning we will be looking at two parables through which Jesus teaches us that his kingdom will only ever increase. It will only ever grow. That it will only ever triumph. For the disciple of Jesus, for you and me, these parables we'll look at this morning should be an immense source of comfort for us that cuts through the, the, the troubling world we see around us. Let's read our text, starting in verse 31 of Matthew 13. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord, this is your word. We thank you that though the flower may fade and the grass withers, that your word remains forever, that your word endures, that your word is uh, just as relevant and powerful for us today as it was uh, when the, the first copies of it were written. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, you would teach us today. Lord, that where we are despairing, you would give us hope. Lord, where we are slothful, that you would give us zeal. Where we are, um, Lord, perhaps ignorant, that you would teach us. Father, would you help us to understand the teaching of your Son in these parables today, that we may grow in our knowledge and understanding and, uh, Lord, love and participation in your kingdom. And Father, I pray for your help, Holy Spirit. Would you 
Uh, bless the preaching of your word today for the glory of your name, O God, and for the benefit of your people. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, if you recall over the past couple weeks, uh, I've said this, I think, probably too many times, uh, Matthew 13 contains the majority of Jesus' parables, um, some of which are taught to the crowds publicly, um, some of which are taught just to the disciples in, in private. Now, these two parables here we're looking at this morning, when we read the flow of the text, we see that they're taught to the crowds. Jesus teaches them to the, to the big group of people that is waiting to hear from him. But what's interesting is that Jesus does not explain them. He doesn't give an interpretation here like he did with the parable of uh, the wheat and the tares or the parable of the sower. He doesn't really explain what these parables mean. And, and again, this goes back to Jesus' purpose in the parables, to conceal the meaning of the parables from those outside the kingdom and to spiritually reveal truths about the kingdom to those who are inside of it. So Jesus gives the parable and essentially lets uh, the seed fall where it will. And in both of these parables, Jesus begins by saying that the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. He's describing realities about the kingdom. And uh, last week we saw that the kingdom of heaven is one of judgment and salvation. And this morning that we'll see that the kingdom of heaven is one of growth, one of quiet, constant, unstoppable growth. And these two parables, as the title of the message um, demonstrates, they are parables of kingdom growth. Unlike last week, with the parables of the net and the wheat and the tares, Jesus in these parables doesn't compare the kingdom to a situation, but he compares the kingdom of heaven to a thing, to an object, to a mustard seed and to leaven. And the first parable Jesus gives us is the parable of the mustard seed, which teaches us that the kingdom grows from something small. According to this parable, a man sows the mustard seed in his field, um, but again, the focus is not on the act of sowing, it's not on the identity of the sower, uh, but on the nature of the mustard seed. Jesus explains in verse 32, the mustard seed is, is uh, one of the smallest of all seeds, which is very significant for the meaning of the parable. Um, if you've ever eaten corned beef, you've eaten a mustard seed. This is little tiny yellow balls you, you find on corned beef, right? Part of the spices. Uh, and they are very small seeds. They're very tiny. Um, but this statement from Jesus here, before we really get into the parable, this statement from Jesus about the, the size of the mustard seed has actually caused uh, some people to claim that Jesus is not perfect, that he made a mistake. Because mustard seeds are not the smallest of all seeds, literally speaking, right? Um, some people say, well, there's a contradiction. Jesus obviously had uh, some kind of imperfection or ignorance because if he was God, wouldn't he know that an orchid seed is smaller than a mustard seed? Uh, but this is really a, a silly objection that misses Jesus' purpose in teaching this parable. First, uh, Jesus is using figurative language here, right? This is hyperbole. He's not given a botany lesson. Uh, second, Jesus is using a proverbially accepted phrase in the first century Jewish world, where a mustard seed was used to describe something extremely tiny, right? It was just a, a phrase, a, an expression of speech. The mustard seed is the smallest of seeds. And third, as we see down in verse 32, Jesus is uh, speaking about the mustard seed in comparison to Palestinian garden plants. Not all the plants in the entire world, right? So we don't need to worry here. Jesus is not making a mistake. He's teaching a parable. He's teaching a parable. His point is simply this. The mustard seed is incredibly small. It's very, very tiny. In fact, when the man sows this mustard seed in his field, you could look at the field and you wouldn't be able to see the mustard seed there. It would just look like a field. 
right? It's so small, it's practically invisible. You'd have to get down on your hands and knees and poke around in the dirt. It's that, that, that tiny, that small. And in this, we, we have a truth about the kingdom of God. It is not something readily apparent to the eye. It is not something extravagant. It is not something flashy. It is not something gaudy. You look through God's dealings and God's work throughout Scripture, and you see that this has always been the case. Consider God's dealing with Israel. A nation that was not great, a nation that was not magnificent, but a nation that was small and weak. And God is explicitly um, open about this when he talks to Israel. He says, I didn't call you because you were great or mighty. I called you because I have a purpose for you. Yet he called this tiny little nation of, of shepherds, really, to himself from among all the nations of the earth. Not Egypt, but Israel. Consider the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus was a carpenter's son from Nazareth, from the backwoods, right? From, from hillbilly country. Isaiah 53.2 describes him not in majestic, beautiful terms, but like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty we should desire him. There was nothing uh, handsome about Jesus. He wasn't like Saul, who stood ahead above everybody else and was handsome among all the people in his tribe, right? Jesus was plain, ordinary, nothing special to look at. And who did Jesus surround himself with? Right? A ragtag group of disciples who were hardly upper crust members of society, right? Uh, they were fishermen, tax collectors, uh, zealots, right? The early church itself was extremely small. And they met in houses, not cathedrals. Uh, mostly, they were made up of the poor people in society. The early church had no political power, no social influence at all. They were practically invisible and insignificant, socially speaking. And consider yourself, right? In the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is God's design for his kingdom, for his church. Especially in Jesus' day, right? So small, so insignificant. Right now, it may appear that same way. From an external worldly perspective, the kingdom of heaven may not look like much at all. And I'm not talking about, again, grand cathedrals or cultural Christianity or the Vatican or giant, enormous churches. These things are not synonymous with the kingdom of God. Wealth and power, from an earthly perspective, is not synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. And, and more often than not, these kinds of things are actually opposed to the kingdom of Christ. Preferring instead to build earthly kingdoms instead of his. No, the true kingdom of heaven is found not in buildings, but in the hearts of God's people. In the hearts of God's people. And that reality is very plain. That's very ordinary. You can't see it like you can a giant uh, you know, display of wealth or something. It's very hidden. Yet, just like the mustard seed, it's still there, and it grows, and it grows. In verse 32, Jesus teaches us that the mustard seed doesn't stay this small, but it grows larger and larger and larger, in fact, becoming a tree. 
larger than any of the other plants in the garden, right? This again is, is kind of exaggerated language from Jesus to make a point. Mustard bushes usually just grow a few feet in diameter, right? They're not like an oak tree. But they're certainly, as Jesus says, bigger than all the other plants and herbs found in a Palestinian garden, right? Bigger than cucumber, cumin, dill, mint, thyme. And so the mustard plant does indeed become the biggest plant in the garden, and it becomes large enough, Jesus says, that all the birds of the heavens come and find shelter in its branches. Now, the kingdom begins as this teeny tiny seed, but eventually it grows. It grows. And this language from Jesus about the growing mustard tree and the birds coming to roost in its branches is Old Testament language. It's Old Testament language we see in the prophets. Uh, turn with me to Daniel 4 for a moment. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We'll look at verses 10 and 12. 10 through 12. Daniel chapter 4. Uh, in this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He's looking for someone to interpret it for him. And here is what he describes as, uh, as part of his dream. Uh, looking at verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. We have that language there of the tree and all the birds of the heavens coming to live in it. Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that this tree represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. Something great, powerful, mighty, and yet... We read further on in this dream, down in verse 14, what happens to this tree. A watcher comes down from heaven and says, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. This tree is cut down. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, This dream, Nebuchadnezzar, means that your great kingdom will come to an end. It will be taken. It will come to ruin. It will not last as great as it was. And we could look at Ezekiel 31, just uh, back a book in your Bible to the left, Ezekiel 31. We see similar imagery here too. Ezekiel 31, describing the king of Assyria's kingdom. Back in verse 3, we read, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height that's top among the clouds, the waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water and its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. Again, we see the same kind of language here. The king of Assyria's kingdom. It's a big tree. All the birds of the heavens come and uh, roost in it. And yet we read later on in the same chapter. But what do we read in verse 12? Foreigners, the most, most ruthless of nations, have cut down this tree and left it. Its branches have fallen. Its boughs have been broken. 
we see the same thing. This great and mighty kingdom, God says, will come to an end. This tree is chopped down. This great kingdom of Assyria, as wonderful as it was, would not last. And it didn't. It came to destruction and ruin. But in Ezekiel 17, God describes his own kingdom using this kind of language of trees and birds. Ezekiel 17, looking at verses 22 and 24. We read this. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will rest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make dry it. excuse me, make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. What do we see here? We see God taking a branch, then taking the tiniest twig from that branch, something very, very, very small, planting it, growing it into this great and mighty tree in which all the birds of the heavens come and roost, and yet this tree remains forever. Right? God's kingdom, unlike Babylon or Assyria, remains forever. It doesn't come to an end. It grows and grows and grows. This is the same kind of picture we have in the parable of the mustard seed. Something very, very tiny, right? Jesus is using this imagery of of kingdom language. Yet unlike Babylon and Assyria, the kingdom of heaven grows and endures. And, And it's been doing this since Adam and Eve. God's kingdom has actually been growing since Adam and Eve. And on the surface of things, right, we look around us and we say, well, things are really in decline. How can we say the kingdom's growing? Well, what we see isn't the whole picture, right? Maybe, maybe the influence of cultural Christianity is lessening in the West. That's true. But are men, women, and children still hearing and believing the gospel? Yes, they are. Are they still entering the kingdom? Yes, they are. And in other parts of the world, like Africa and Asia, the gospel is spreading like never before. Souls are being saved. People are entering the kingdom of heaven. It is only growing and growing and growing as people come to faith in Christ by God's grace. The kingdom is only growing. We make a a grave mistake if we equate the visible growth of the church, socially, culturally, with the advance of the kingdom. That is a grave mistake. The kingdom uh, is, is not an earthly kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. And so its growth is not earthly growth, it is spiritual growth. How is it that the kingdom grows into this tree? Well, this happens as God's people, as the elect, are gathered in throughout the ages and across the world through the preaching of the gospel. That's where kingdom growth happens. That's how the kingdom's borders expand. Not by how much money the church has or how much power it has, But as people believe the gospel, they are brought into the kingdom. And its ranks grow through salvation. So don't focus, right, on on what your eyes see with the decline of Christianity in the West. Jesus teaches us not to put our hope in an institutional, national, cultural Christianity. But in him and his kingdom, which is spiritual and in that regard, invisible. 
but always increasing. Always increasing. Always growing. That tree will never be cut down. The rule of Christ over His people, the salvation of souls, only ever increases over time. That's the meaning of this parable, that as the gospel is preached, as the message of the kingdom goes out, the kingdom grows from a tiny little seed into a spiritual tree, a shelter for God's people. A kingdom that will never be shaken, but will only ever grow and be established and increase. And Jesus' second parable in verse 33, Jesus addresses another aspect of the kingdom's growth. It is spread throughout the world. Spread throughout the world. The parable of the leaven. In verse 33, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to leaven. A leaven, of course, is anything that you put in bread dough to make it rise. Now, generally, that's yeast. And often in the ancient world, uh, what a baker would do is take a, a piece of leavened dough that had yeast in it, and they would mix it into a batch of unleavened dough. And because yeast multiplies, it's a living organism, right? Eventually that whole lump of dough would be leavened. It would be filled with yeast all the way through. If you've ever made sourdough bread, right? Use a sourdough starter. Same kind of thing. And in this parable, this, this uh, woman, this baker, adds the leaven to three measures of flour. Right? And, and the whole batch becomes leaven. Three measures of flour, by the way, is about 50 pounds of flour. Right? That's like the costco size bag you can get. It's a lot of flour. Um, it's enough to make bread to feed about 100 people, which is a lot more than uh, a woman in her home would generally make. Right? Um, that's a very big scope of spread here. That's kind of the point of the parable. It's an enormous amount of flour, and yet it all becomes leavened. And, and the leaven is hidden, Jesus says. It's mixed in with the rest of the dough. Like the mustard seed, you can't see it with the naked eye. You can't see it. You can't go, up. Oh, there's the yeast right there. Maybe you see the dough start to rise, of course. But, but even the spread of the yeast in the dough, right? Even if it rises a little, it's very imperceptible. It makes no sound. There's not really any color changes in the bread. Um, again, maybe it rises, but it's something that happens very quietly. Very thoroughly. But very quietly. The entire batch of dough, Jesus says, becomes leavened in this way. What does this parable mean? What does this parable mean? Um, some people will use these, these parables, both of them really, to claim that the church uh, has a mission, which is to grow and eventually take over the whole world. That these parables teach that God's plan is to have the entire world become Christianized. That's the goal of the church, to Christianize the world. Um, they believe that the mission of the church is to leaven or transform society and make it Christian in its orientation. Um, it's a very popular view right now. But is that what this parable really teaches? Now, it's undeniable, as we look at history, right, it is undeniable that Christianity has had an unprecedented and massive impact on the world that we live in, right? Whether you're a Christian or not, that's just the facts of history. Right? Do you like going to the hospital? Well, nobody likes going to the hospital, but are you glad hospitals exist? That's because of Christianity. Christians started the first houses of care for the sick in the 3rd and 4th century. The scientific method, which has rapidly advanced technology in the West, was formed largely on the basis of Christian beliefs in the 16th and 17th century. Right, Because we live in a world that was created 
Let's study it carefully to learn about its creator. Art and music developed thanks to Christian convictions about beauty. The legal system of the West, where there is order, where there is law, where there is a clear process, exists because of Christian morals and biblical law examples. Human rights, just basic human rights, like you can't own other human beings or, you know, you can't just kill this child. Throughout history, those things came into uh, the conscience of the world because of the Christian doctrine of humanity and the sacredness of life. These are wonderful things. We praise God for these things and for how God has used the gospel and Christian truth and values to improve the world we live in at large. Those are good things, right? And maybe we can include that in the leavening effect here. But that's not ultimately what Jesus is talking about. But as good as those things are, as thankful as we are for those things, that's not primarily what Jesus is talking about here. The church's mission is nowhere stated in Scripture to be transforming the world. It is nowhere in the Bible that that is the church's mission to go and make society Christianized. There is not one verse that suggests that. The church is nowhere commanded to gain political power or social influence. You will not find a verse that says that. And to be honest, when you look at history, when the church has sought to do those things, when those have been the ambitions of the church, things go off the rails. Things go off the rails. The gospel gets forgotten. The church becomes corrupted uh, in, in a way that is almost unimaginable. There's, you know, there's an understandable frustration that we have when we see our culture uh, becoming so depraved, right? We're not happy about that. We want to do something about that. And that is a good desire, and we should uh, take action where we can. But there is a difference between believing God has commanded the church to fix society Big difference between that and saying, I want to get involved and I want to jump into this and I want to do this as an individual Christian. What is the mission of the church? It is to preach the gospel, to facilitate the worship of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. That's the mission of the church. That's what the mission of the apostles was. That's what we see them doing in the book of Acts. That's what the focus of the early church was. Worship Jesus Christ, make disciples through preaching the gospel. That hasn't changed, right? That hasn't changed. One commentator hits the nail on the head when he says that the church simply applies the gospel and through it the leavening takes place. This doesn't mean the church is to enter the fields of politics, sociology, or public reform. And when this is attempted, the church loses her power. The yeast does not work in that way. To many, this process of leavening seems too slow and so they take something to hasten the working of the leaven along but thereby only hindering its silent, steady progress of fermentation. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that Christians can't be involved in politics or sociology or social reform or, or um, lobbying right to political figures for uh, influence and legislation. We want righteous legislation. And praise God that some Christians are involved in these things throughout history and, and even now, right? It's because of Christians slavery was abolished. Praise God. And that doesn't mean, again, that the church shouldn't speak from Scripture against social issues like abortion or slavery or sexuality. But at the same time, nowhere does God command the mission and purpose of the church 
to be primarily focused on social reform. Will that happen as the gospel is preached? Maybe. Sometimes. So what does this parable teach about the kingdom? Well, Jesus' kingdom is in the world. It's in the world. Just like the yeast, the leaven was in the flour. But his kingdom is not of the world. It doesn't spread through the Christianization of society at an external behavioral level or legal level. Right? It, it spread comes as the gospel spreads throughout the world and throughout history as the gospel reaches every nation and people group. That's how the leaven goes out, as the gospel goes out throughout the world. Uh, Paul describes this in Colossians 1. He says, Indeed, in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, Colossians, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This parable from Jesus here is teaching that the gospel message will indeed leaven the whole world, but that it will do so spiritually with the gospel. The gospel will permeate every people group that has existed since the incarnation of Christ. And this happens over time, just like leavening. But eventually, every nation, tribe, and tongue will have the gospel. doesn't mean every person in the world will hear the gospel, but it does mean that every nation will um, get that information. Every group of people will be touched by the gospel at some point in time. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 14. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That seems to suggest that Christ will not return until the gospel has made it to every nation and people group. And what does Jesus tell his disciples in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations? All nations, right? That is the leavening of the gospel. That is the mission of the church, to spread it to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we have a, a really great opportunity for this in America, right? Because America has so many people from different nations coming here, right? You don't have to necessarily go overseas to talk to somebody from Somalia, or somebody from Ukraine, or somebody from Uganda, or China. We have people from all different nations coming here to the United States. What a great opportunity. And John, in his vision of heaven, describes all those who have entered the kingdom. It's really a beautiful picture of a, of a fully leavened world. He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is a picture of the leavening effect of the gospel as it reaches every nation, as the world is leavened, not with social transformation, not with political influence, uh, but leavened with the words of eternal life and saving faith in Jesus Christ. That leavening will be complete. And again, we look at the West. We wonder, has the leaven lost its power? Is there an expiration date on the packet of yeast? But, but friends, consider, America has had the gospel. America has had the gospel. Europe has had the gospel. The Middle East has had the gospel. These places, though they are in decline, they have been leavened. 
These are nations that have received the gospel. They've heard these things. And now the leavening is spreading even further across the world to Africa, to China. Do you know that 100 years ago, 9% of Africa was Christian? And they lived in about four or five countries, at 9%. But now nearly 50% of Africa would identify as Christian. That's remarkable. In the past 40 years, China's population of Christians has increased from 1 million to 100 million in 40 years. That's almost one-third of the population of the United States. 100 million people. The New Testament has now been translated into over 1,600 languages, which is incredible, and yet there's still over 5,000 to go. The gospel still has so much room to spread around the world. But it is spreading. It is spreading, right? We, we, we support missionaries in Madagascar and in India that the gospel might leaven these countries too. So friends, the cultural Christianity of the West, it is indeed in decline. That's true. But the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, the message that Christ died and rose to save sinners, is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. It is just as powerful in, in a dead, liberal, atheistic New England as it was in Palestine. And it will remain that powerful until Jesus Christ returns. You and I may not be able to see its effects. You and I may not. But Jesus teaches us here Something we can stand upon, that his kingdom will never fail. That it will only ever grow. That it will be established for all time. That every nation will hear the gospel. And when Christ returns, his, his kingdom, which is established in our hearts now, will be established in the new heavens and the new earth. And his kingdom will never falter. So brothers and sisters, these, these simple parables give us a, a guiding star, if you will. As we look at everything going on around us, as it stirs us to, to distress, as we are uh, moved from peacefulness, as we become anxious and worried and troubled, and indeed we should be grieved about the, the direction of our country, right? We should be grieved about the way our society is going, absolutely. But these parables give us something to stand on that carries us through that. That regardless of what we see or what we read in the news, these are the words of Jesus Christ. His kingdom will remain forever. So don't lose hope, brothers and sisters. Don't lose hope. Don't be given to anxiety and despair, but be encouraged, be comforted to know that whatever you may see, Christ's kingdom continues to grow, just like those little mustard seeds, just like that invisible yeast. His kingdom continues to spread. And as Isaiah 9, 7 describes of him, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is God's will and God's good pleasure to grow the kingdom of heaven further and further and further. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have not left the kingdom in our hands. 
And we thank you, Lord, that you, as the king of the kingdom, are conquering souls through the gospel. That white rider who goes out with the sword of truth, who brings good news to all the earth. And yet, Lord, we are amazed that you would even include us and allow us to participate in the expansion of your kingdom. Father, would you open our eyes to opportunities to be part of that leavening effect as we seek to proclaim the words of eternal life. Father, I pray that you would, uh, through these, these parables from Jesus, strengthen our faith, that we would be able to rest in the sufficiency of the gospel and to believe that it is truly enough, that it is truly our calling, our message, our purpose as a church to preach the gospel and through that to make disciples. Lord, help us to cling to these truths and realities as the world around us is shaken and seems to be falling apart. But yet, Lord, we know that as the kingdoms of man, those, those trees are cut down to the stump, that the kingdom of Christ will remain forever and will remain standing on the last day. So, Lord, help us to hope in that, in your promises, in your word, in the power of your gospel, in the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, bringing men and women and children to faith in Christ as your kingdom grows. And Lord, we praise you for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.